We are reading from Luke chapter 10, and we'll be reading verses 38 to 42. Luke 10, 38 to 42, and we're not doing a PowerPoint, so grab your Bibles and feel free to turn to the passage. Now as they were traveling along, he, Jesus, entered a certain village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. And she had a sister called Mary, who moreover was listening to the Lord's word, seated at his feet. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you were worried and bothered about so many things. But really only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part which shall not be taken away from her. Dear Father, we ask this morning that you would impress on our, on our hearts the magnitude of what Jesus is saying in this passage and that we would understand what that one necessary thing is and we would be defined by it. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Please be seated. Last week I didn't have a clock here and I was going by that one. I promised that by that clock I will finish by noon. But I won't promise what happens with this one. Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. <laughs> How many of you could put your own name in that statement in place of Martha's? I know I could. When I came to faith in Christ, both the number and the magnitude of the things that caused me anxiety was reduced dramatically. But I'd be telling a bald-faced lie if I said that I, I never worry about things that aren't worthy of worry. <laughs> and I suspect that the same is true of everyone else in this room. In the process of, uh, through the Bible reading, I came once, a, once again a couple of weeks ago onto this very, very familiar passage in Luke chapter 10. It was during a week when I was working on wrapping up our study of Galatians. And as I, as I read and reread this brief passage in Luke 10, the Spirit brought to mind another passage and another particular statement, very simple, very profound from Galatians in, Luke, in, in Galatians 2.20. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Our passage this morning is about that way of living. The life of faith in Jesus Christ is a life of intense and intensely personal devotion to the one who loved us and delivered himself up for us. This passage that's found at the end of Luke chapter 10 centers on a very brief conversation between Jesus and Martha. Martha initiates that conversation 
but Jesus definitely finishes it. Martha's words here bring a rebuke from our Lord, but it's a gentle rebuke. It's a rebuke given to one whom Jesus loved dearly. And it was given not to harm her, but to move her toward that which truly blesses. None of Jesus' words to Martha's sister Mary are recorded here. But Mary's actions serve in this passage as the counterpoint to both Martha's words and Martha's actions. And they serve as a powerful example for Martha and for all of us of what devotion to the one necessary thing is all about. Now, what exactly does the passage say that Mary was doing? It says she was, verse 39, sitting at the Lord's feet, listening to His Word. And what was Martha doing? Well, before she interrupted whatever Jesus was saying to Mary and whoever was in the room with Mary, Martha was serving the guests who had gathered in her home, which no doubt included Jesus and His disciples and others. Now, the word that's translated making preparations in verse 40 is the word that means service or ministry. We had a passage read in the worship this morning that says that when Jesus returns and we get to be with Him at the, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, that He's going to serve us, and it uses the same root word. It's the word from which we get the word deacon. Hardly something that the Bible discourages. Martha was being hospitable. Verse 38 says it was Martha, not Mary, who had welcomed Jesus into her home when he and his disciples had arrived in the village of Bethany, which is spitting distance from Jerusalem. Okay, so Mary was sitting at the Lord's feet listening to his word, and Martha was diligently showing hospitality to Jesus and his disciples. Is one of those things bad and the other good? No. Certainly not. The activity of both women was commendable. Any notion that faithfulness in doing the hard work of service, physical, material service to one another is somehow misguided or reflects misplaced priorities (laughs) is a biblically indefensible notion. In fact, the excellent woman of Proverbs 31 is a woman whose hands are busy with productive work each day, even after the sun has set. Her lamp does not go out at night. God has blessed our local body with many women who are diligent and effective at all kinds of good things, showing warm hospitality to missionary families who were here on furlough, to ministry groups and to neighbors, planning and hosting dinners and events at church and in their homes, and leading or assisting with all all manner of other works of service and ministry, all while they are faithfully caring for their own families. All such efforts are highly valuable to God, and they're all commendable. When they are done for Christ's sake, joyfully, and with thankfulness to the Lord. 
So why did Jesus rebuke Martha if she was doing something that the Bible over and over commends? Well, first and foremost, I believe Jesus rebuked her because she was doing commendable work with an uncommendable attitude. Luke's description, Martha's own words to Jesus, and our Lord's gentle words of rebuke to Martha all reveal that something was out of whack with Martha's approach here. Each of those three components of the passage focus on the attitude of Martha's heart far more than they do on the task that she was engaged in doing. Luke says she was distracted with all her preparations. Where he said the word preparations means service, ministry. But perhaps a slightly more precise translation of the word distracted would be driven to distraction by. In virtually all of the Greek lexicons on this passage, the meaning of the word that's translated distracted includes a strong element of anxiety, of personal distress. It's not just that she was sidetracked from doing something else. It's that she was upset. Luke is pointing out the very same thing that Jesus directly then declares to Martha in the first part of his rebuke. That it was Martha's heart that was in the wrong mode of operation far more than her hands and her feet. You see, there's a there's a universal tendency in us to reduce holiness to activity. We read a passage like this and we immediately think, okay, Martha chose the wrong stuff to do and Mary chose the right stuff to do. So the way for us to, vo- to avoid getting rebuked by God is to change our activity. But that's not where Jesus goes in the negative part of his rebuke against Martha. He says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things. And those two words mean the same thing that they appear to mean in your translation. Martha was distressed. She was burdened by the work of service that she was doing, very possibly because she would have preferred to be doing what Mary was doing. The problem wasn't that the things Martha was working on were not valuable or useful. It's that they were not worthy of the anxiety that she attached to them. And they certainly were not worthy of the resentment that she felt toward her sister because of her failure to help her with them. And far less were they worthy of the resentment that she expressed toward Jesus Christ. Every one of us can relate to Martha's frame of mind in this passage. My dear wife told me there's sort of a standing joke among some of the women at CBC regarding this passage. If everyone at the gathering was doing what Mary was doing, would Jesus have made the dinner? One dear brother at our discussion earlier this week about about this passage told me that he used to get a little ticked off after the church potlucks. Because he'd always see some people, typically the same ones every time, gabbing in the hall and foyer, while other people, typically the same ones every time, were busily taking down tables and chairs and washing dishes and vacuuming crumbs off the gym floor to which those people in the foyer had contributed. 
And he figured if all those people in the hall and foyer would just pitch in and help, everybody would get to go home sooner. But then one day he heard about how God had powerfully used one of those conversations that took place in the hall after a potluck. And he realized that many such conversations were no doubt very important and very useful to God. Just as the faithful preparations and cleanup that were going on in the gym and the kitchen were very important and very useful to God. Again, look very carefully at the Lord's words in his rebuke of Martha. Does he say, Martha, Martha, you shouldn't be wasting your time with all of this. Where's your sense of priorities? No, he says, Martha, you were worried and bothered about so many things. But only one thing is necessary. If you want to understand how worried and how bothered Martha was, just look at her words to Jesus. She interrupted Christ's word to all those who were in the room with Mary. And she interrupted him in order to air her complaint against both Mary and Jesus. She accused Mary of irresponsibility and she accused Jesus Christ, the very one whom she personally recognizes to be God's promised Messiah in John 11, of being uncaring or unfair or both. You ever done that? Have you ever thought, God, why are you letting that person do what they're doing? Lord, don't you care? And then Martha says, in effect, why are you letting my sister get away with such irresponsibility? Why are you letting her treat me this way? And why are you treating me this way? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that Martha's sin here is uncommon. (laughs) Martha's problem is that she's just a bit too much like most of us. I know quite a few people in this body who devote many hours every week to various kinds of very useful ministries. If anyone thinks that this church is ministry deficient, and I've heard that before, I would encourage you to talk to any of the elders about what's actually being done. Most of it behind the scenes by faithful men and women and young adults and even teenagers in this body day after day and week after week. It's a lot. But if you talk to those who are diligently engaged in loving and serving others, you'll find that there's a complaint that pops up fairly often. (laughs) And it sounds a lot like Martha's complaint. I'll put it in the first person. I don't understand why so few of my brothers and sisters in this body are willing to help out with the ministry that I'm doing. It's an important ministry. It feels like the the work I'm doing requires the hard work of several people. But many of those who come on Sundays, or at least occasionally on Sundays, seem to just be coasting when they should be serving. Now that complaint may be entirely accurate with regard to certain individuals. It is no doubt true that 
Far too many believers are satisfied to be what J.I. Packer calls balconeers in the Christian life instead of travelers. Just sitting back and watching. And in those cases where it's clear that that's what's going on with a particular brother or sister, God may intend to use you to be the one that gently rebukes that brother or sister and nudges him toward serving. But beloved, if you are one of those Christians who has the spiritual gift of criticism, I have news for you. You don't. A heart that majors in finding fault with others is a heart that is sinning before God. A Christian who does not look for and expect to find the Holy Spirit powerfully at work in his brothers and sisters in Christ, both to will and to work for God's good pleasure, is a Christian who needs his eyes examined. At the beginning of 1 Corinthians 4, Paul, responding to accusations that others had raised against him and his ministry, points out that it is indeed required of us as servants of Christ that we be found trustworthy. We are accountable to God to be faithful ambassadors and image bearers of our Master. But then Paul says this. He says, verse 3, But to me it is a very small thing that I should be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me, the one who examines me, is the Lord. I think that I read that and I think of Psalm 139, the last two verses. Lord, seek me and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thought and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. David is handing that off to God. Paul goes on and he says, verse 5, Therefore do not go on in passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and will disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. We are all so worried and bothered about what the other guy is doing or not doing and why he's doing or not doing it. But beloved, you and I cannot see into our brother's heart. Some of us seem to think that we can. Paul says we cannot. That's God's territory. And unless you've been following a particular brother or sister around 24-7 for a good while, you actually have very little information about what God is doing in him and through him. Recently, I said something to one dear brother in this body about another brother's tenacious faithfulness in quietly serving others day after day in ways that most of us would tend to find tedious and difficult to sustain. And the guy I was talking to said, wow, I had no idea he was doing all that. I thought all he was doing was coming on to services on Sunday morning and that was it. We get all hot and bothered about whether our fellow sheep are trustworthy. <laughs> but the question we really need to resolve personally is whether or not the shepherd of the sheep is trustworthy. 
And the answer, of course, is a resounding yes. You've heard me say this before. I'm sure you'll hear me say it again because I repeat myself a lot. And I believe this is core to our relationships with one another. One of our most common and most damaging errors is confusing the instruments with the source. The one and only source of every good thing and every perfect gift is God Himself. Everyone and everything else in all of His creation that is involved in the delivery of those good and perfect blessings is merely an instrument. You know what that makes us? Dispensable. If I don't do the task that God would have me do, it's not like it's hard for Him to find someone else. How it must grieve the God who bought us at the cost of His own Son's life when we think and act as if our well-being or the furthering and the advancement of the kingdom of Christ depends on what other people around us do or don't do. Isn't it interesting how quickly Martha's accusation against her sister turned into an accusation against her Lord? Lord, look at what my sister isn't doing. Why would you let her get away with that? Don't you care about me? And Jesus lovingly says, in effect, Martha, don't go there. There's nothing good there. Come here. Come here. Sit here at my feet beside your sister for a while and listen to me. We are so worried about we, what we and other people are doing that we forget where the doing that delights the heart of God actually originates. See, it is the depth and intensity and persistence of our relationship with our Savior and Master. It is knowing Him, loving Him, and therefore loving to do the things that delight Him, that drive godly actions, not the other way around. You can go all the way back to the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, which is really one long book, And you'll find this to be the driving principle behind every commandment of God. In Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, God said to Israel, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. The call to to Israel to keep the commandments of God was built upon that one foundation, upon the love of God. When he was asked what the greatest commandment is, Jesus replied, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great, greatest and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that one comes from the first one. He said, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets, every good activity. Godly behavior is the fruit of love for the God who has loved us. Now, don't get me wrong. Obedience is not optional. Indeed, it is in humble obedience 
to Christ that we get to behold God's mighty work most vividly and that we find ourselves all the more compelled to love Him and trust Him and obey Him. But at every point in a believer's life, the obedience that delights God is the obedience that proceeds from love for God. This is where Mary's example comes sharply into focus. While Martha was distressed about dispensable things, good things, but things that were ultimately reassignable, if you will, While Martha was distressed about dispensable things, Mary was immersed in the indispensable, the one indispensable thing. She was sitting at the Lord's feet, listening to His Word. Jesus said, Martha, in effect, (laughs) what your sister is doing, that's the one necessary thing. He said, Mary has chosen the good part which shall not be taken away from her. The the time that you spend sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to His Word, it's, it's time that will be multiplied to you in eternity. This heart of loving devotion to Christ was characteristic of Mary. This is the same Mary who just one week before Jesus' death anointed our Lord's feet with very expensive perfumed ointment and then wiped his feet with her hair. In John 12, verses 1 through 8. What was Martha doing at that point? Waiting tables. This is where our choice of activities comes into play. There are many good and useful things that God has for us to do. And we're called to do all of them as unto the Lord. We know that in our workplaces, in our homes, in our church kitchen, in a Sunday school room, or in a prison cell, it is the Lord Jesus Christ whom we serve. But the heart that rightly values God will always find one activity to be preeminent. It's not the only thing God has for us to do. It's just the one that we cannot do without. God has many instruments and He knows them all very well. He will orchestrate everything to bring about His will on earth. He gives all the spiritual gifts. He shepherds His sheep to get the things done that He has determined to get done. And when one person or even a whole church fails to do what he is assigned, be assured that he will raise up other instruments. His agenda is not going to be squelched by us. But there is one thing that every child of God must do firsthand. There is one activity in your life as a child of God that God will never hand off to someone else. And that He will not let you hand off to someone else. And that one thing is the time that you spend at the feet of Jesus listening to His Word. Think of it this way. Think about all the things that you do in a given day. Useful things. Good things. (laughs) Things that somebody needs to do. 
Now think about how many of those things someone else could potentially do instead of you. Someone with the right knowledge and experience could take over your work responsibilities and probably does for most of you when you go on vacation. You could pay someone else to mow your lawn and fix your car. You could even pay someone else to raise your kids. Not a good idea, but it's possible. <laughs> Let me ask you this. How would it work out if you paid someone else to eat for you? When Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness trying to entice him to turn stones into bread to end his 40-day fast, Jesus answered Satan from Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. He said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Beloved, this is your necessary food. This is your tent of meeting with God. This is where you go to hear the angel of Yahweh speak directly to you as he spoke to Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and Peter and Mary and Martha and Paul. This is where you go to sit at the feet of Jesus and to listen to His Word. I think there are people in our midst, possibly people in this room, who would like this to be about something other than the Bible. It's not. There are other reasons that some people read and study the Bible. Some actually study it to refute it. Some study the Bible to learn what to do and what not to do so they can make themselves worthy of God's favor. That is a fool's errand to anyone who understands what the Bible actually declares about God's perfection of holiness and righteousness and about the hopelessness of our sin apart from Christ. God didn't give us this book as an instruction manual on how to earn His favor. The reason God gave us the Bible is so we may know God. So that we may sit at the feet of Jesus and listen to His Word. The reason God sent prophets and apostles to their deaths to deliver His Word, and the reason that countless men and women have forfeited their lives to spread and proclaim His Word so that men and women and children might is so that men and women and children might sit at the feet of Jesus and listen to Him so that they will behold God. And so that beholding Him, we will know Him and love Him and trust Him and obey Him and find Him alone to be life. The connection between sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to His Word And knowing God is a connection we cannot miss. At the beginning of this very same chapter, Luke 10, Jesus sent out 70 of His followers in pairs to go into every city into which He was about to go Himself to set the stage by healing the sick and proclaiming the coming of the kingdom of God. Listen to what Jesus said in Luke 10, verses 22 to 24, when the 70 returned to Him with glowing reports about all that God had done in their midst. 
He said, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and no one knows who the Father is except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. And you know what? That last word, Him, is not in the text. Him is italicized. Anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal. What? The Father or the Son. Turning to His disciples, Jesus said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you, many prophets and kings wished to see the things that you see and did not see them. And to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. Jesus is saying, I believe, that His Father is the only one who truly knows who He is and He's the only one who truly knows who His Father is among men. I'm not not setting the Holy Spirit aside here. I'm saying among men. So if we're going to ever truly know either the Father or the Son, one of them has to talk to us. I'm in the process of rereading my very old copy of J.I. Packer's marvelous book, Knowing God. He says this about God talking to us. He says, He made us with the intention that He and we might walk together forever in a love relationship. But such a relationship can only exist when the parties involved know something of each other. God, our Maker, knows all about us before we say anything. And then he quotes, he cites Psalm 139. But we can know nothing about Him unless He tells us. If we're going to know the Father or the Son or the Spirit, one of them has to talk to us. And Jesus is saying that the only one the only way that anyone truly comes to know either the Father or the Son is through Him, the Son, Jesus Christ. When He left, He sent the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit took up the task. Here's the declaration that corresponds with what, uh, that declaration corresponds with what we read about Jesus in John chapter 1. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the one and only from the Father, the only begotten. Full of grace and truth. And then a few verses later, this is important, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. Jesus doesn't say, no man has seen the Father at any time. He says, no man has seen God at any time. Jesus is the one through whom the invisible God has shown Himself to mankind. This was true not only during the time that Jesus was here in the flesh. This has been true and continues to be true in every age until the redeemed of God stand in the very presence of God in the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, has been revealing God to men ever since God created Adam and Eve. I'm convinced that it was He who walked in the garden with the first man and woman before the fall. It was He, the angel of Yahweh, 
the second person of the Trinity, who appeared to Abraham and Jacob and Manoah and Daniel. It was He who danced in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It was He whose glory Isaiah beheld on His majestic throne with the train of His robe filling the temple. And when Jesus took on flesh and walked among men as man, mankind got to behold God more fully and more clearly than ever before. We know God by beholding the Son of God. And the way we come to know the Son of God personally is by sitting at His feet and listening to His Word. But you and I can't do that physically, can we? We can't sit down at the feet of Jesus Christ and listen to Him as Mary was able to do and as His disciples did. We can't talk to Him face to face as Martha did. So how can we truly behold Him? There's one necessary way. Would you like to sit at the feet of Jesus and hear what He has to say? You can. Today. God's written revelation of Himself in the Bible is about Jesus Christ from cover to cover. This is the word concerning Christ. All of it. Jesus attested to that fact to two disciples as he walked on the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus after he was resurrected. God has provided many means by which you and I get to watch him confirm what he has declared of himself in his word. And I believe the greatest of those means is simple, humble obedience. I've heard many believers point out that it is in the act of obeying that we get to see God's hand at work in our midst most vividly. I'm convinced of that. God delights in in showing Himself off to those who are willing to put their trust in Him enough to actually do what He tells us to do. But what He gives us in those instances is not new truth about Himself. It is the confirmation in history and in the experience of His people of that which He has declared about Himself in His Word through His prophets, through His apostles. There's only one way that you come to know what God has told mankind about Himself so that you'll recognize it when you see it played out in human experience. You have to come and sit at the feet of Jesus and listen to His Word. 2 Peter 1 Verses 2 through 4. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So how do you get grace and peace multiplied? By knowing God and knowing Jesus. He says, seeing that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. So how do we get everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness? By knowing God. And then he says, for by these, by His glory and excellence, He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises. So that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. 
Beloved, how do we become partakers of the divine nature and escape the corruption of this world? By the precious and magnificent promises of God. Both the pleasant ones and the unpleasant ones. (laughs) And where do you find the precious and magnificent promises of God? There's only one necessary place. You sit at the feet of Jesus and you listen to His Word. A little later in that same chapter, Peter says we do well to pay attention to what? The prophetic Word. The Word of God, which is all about His beloved Son. Which is a lamp shining in a dark place that we must come to until the day dawns and the morning star arises in our hearts. And then, of course, Peter points out that these Scriptures are not the contrivance of men. As so many fallen men insist that they are. He says, know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved, borne along by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. You want to know things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not even entered the heart of man? You want to know all that God has prepared for those who love Him? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 2 how to know those things. He says that God has revealed them to us by the work of the Spirit who takes the spiritual thoughts from the very mind of God and unites them with spiritual words. And those spiritual words are all about Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You know where you hear those words? Just one necessary place. You sit at the feet of Jesus and you listen to His Word. Do you want a more durable, unshakable faith? Okay. Romans 10.17, Paul tells you how. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the Word of Christ. There are many things that must get done in this life. And God has many instruments to accomplish all of those things. You're one of those instruments if you belong to Him. The Christian life is a busy life. (laughs) When it's lived well, it's never boring and it's often very, very intense. But there is one thing you must do. And it is the thing that will determine the rightness and the value of all the other things that you do as God pierces your heart and conforms you to Christ through it. Just one necessary thing. I'm not a big fan of New Year's resolutions because I don't put a whole lot of stock in my promises to God. I put a lot of stock in His promises. But as our brother Bill McRae said to us at last year's men's retreat, God intends for us to resolve to do the things that He considers important and to do them by His power, which we know we already have. And here's a value proposition that you can take to the bank. The time you spend in God's Word this year, if your desire in doing so is to behold God and to know God will be hands down the most 
valuable thing that you do with your time. And that will be the truth every year that God leads you here on this earth. I will never apologize for saying that. And I hope that you don't think I need to. Come. Sit at the feet of Jesus and listen to His Word. There's nothing else like it. Loving Father, I pray for this body, these beloved brothers and sisters, as I pray for myself, that we won't compromise on this. I ask You, Father, that You would convince us, You would overwhelm us with the compelling argument from Scripture that Your Word, that You have placed in our hands at the cost of many lives over many hundreds of years is the place that we go to behold You. Most fully, most clearly, most truly, there is nothing like it. Father, make us, make us to have the habit of sitting at the feet of Jesus and listening to His Word. I pray this in His precious name, for His sake, for the sake of the advancement of His kingdom on this earth through us. Amen.